Welcome to Blunt History, a podcast dealing with the history of the war on drugs told, well, bluntly. We think it'll have you saying, what the F? We're your hosts, Natalie Brennan and Stina Perkins. Should we address the big elephant in the room? I guess it would more be the elephant not in the room. Right. There are no blunts in the room. Mostly because we decided that would be a meta portrayal of the very problem we're describing here. Two white kids using drugs without worrying about the repercussions of that drug use because the laws in place were not created to punish us. We'll be speaking bluntly and we'll be speaking about blunts, but there'll be no actual blunts themselves. Two blunts. Because also, well... That would just be a very different show if there was a third blunt in the room, but I digress. Let's cut to the statistics. According to the ACLU, white and black Americans use drugs at the same rates. But despite this, black people are 2.5 times more likely than white people to be arrested for drug possession. That number is even higher for marijuana, which makes up about half of all drug arrests. For marijuana, black people are 3.7 times more likely to be arrested than white people. Let's make that very clear. Drug use is the same across race. Arrest is not. There is obviously a problem here, and it's not some confounding variable that's causing this discrepancy. It's the policing and direct targeting of minorities. Which leads into a larger conversation that is a hot topic right now in social justice discourse, mass incarceration. A popular statistic that is passed around a lot is that the U.S. holds only 5% of the world's population, but 25% of the prison population. And this population of American prisoners is, as we just mentioned, disproportionately affected by race. Because the statistics for men are cited a lot, we're actually going to focus on prison population statistics here as they relate to both race and gender. In the larger conversations about mass incarceration, black women are frequently left out of the discourse. The United States incarcerates the most women out of any country. Black women are incarcerated at twice the rate of white women, and Hispanic women are 1.2 times the rate of white women. And so this is largely how this conversation becomes a feminist one. When pitching this podcast to friends, I got a lot of, why are you running it through what the F? Is it about feminism? And I guess my answer to that is, of course it is, if we broaden our definition of feminism. Right, yeah. So if feminism is concerned with systems of oppression and power, then it must be concerned with state control, a primary manifestation of oppression and power. Over-policing, surveillance, sentencing, these are all concrete forms of social control used to dominate particular populations while preserving the oppressive status quo under some guise of law and order. This is a feminist issue, and like we said, no country imprisons more women than America. This really wasn't always the case. After Nixon announced the war on drugs in 1971, our prison population grew by 700% by the year 2005. 700%! That number is not because of an increased population or a spike in crime rates. I mean, think about it, really. 700%! And a full half of that prison population is comprised of non-violent drug offenses. We didn't become that much more morally corrupt as a nation. I mean, maybe we did look at our current (laughs) political state, but no. We didn't have a 700% increase in drug use. 
It's the same with the black and white drug use statistics. It's not about the action. It's about who is doing the action. It's about the process of criminalizing groups of people and the perpetuation of social stratification. This is what we mean by the war on drugs. But maybe what we really mean is the war on racial minorities scapegoated under drug law. And that's our goal here. Throughout the course of these episodes, to expose the blunt history of how drug laws have been used to police populations and protect others. So let's start from the beginning, or I guess a beginning? Yeah, a beginning. So what has kind of been targeted as the first drug law in American history is the 1875 San Francisco Anti-Opium Den Ordinance. This regulation made it a misdemeanor to own or visit an opium den, but... As always, this law wasn't really about the act of smoking opium itself. They weren't really concerned about the drug. And this is shown through the way in which the ordinance was written. It is about the criminalization of opium dens themselves. These dens were widely owned by Chinese immigrants. And for some quick historical background, California's population had just grown tremendously during its mid-century gold rush. Chinese immigrants were brought into the state in great numbers to help build railroads for westward settlers and were exploited as a source of cheap labor. But then, after an economic depression that followed the building of the railroads, the Chinese immigrants were blamed. The white working man's party was competing with immigrants for jobs in this post-gold rush era, and a larger anti-Chinese sentiment swept over. This context is key. Opium had been in the country for decades at this point, so you have to ask yourself, why regulation now? And if you were worried about the general population's drug use, you would regulate the drug, not the dens themselves, right? Right, but this wasn't the case. Just a week before the ordinance was passed, the San Francisco Chronicle published an article that was literally titled The Chinese Question, where the opening line is, quote, we have fought the Chinese fight in California and we have lost it, end quote. So there's really no question here about the anti-Chinese sentiment that was running through California at this time. I mean, it was only seven years later that Congress passed the infamous and detrimental Chinese Exclusion Act, one of the biggest examples of exclusionary immigration laws meant to protect the white American population from outsiders. This ordinance passed by San Francisco was getting after a similar goal, regulating space by racial lines. Whereas the dens were originally Chinese-dominated spaces, they were increasingly becoming occupied by white urbanites. In a Chronicle article published the day after the ordinance was passed, it is noted that, quote, there are now existing within three blocks of City Hall eight opium-smoking establishments kept by Chinese for the exclusive use of white men and women, end quote. And this was what was being seen as dangerous. Because these dens had existed for some time? Entirely, but now white people, or particularly white women, were frequenting them in higher rates. And in fact, the impetus for the ordinance was that, quote, many women and young girls, as well as young men of respectable family, were being induced to visit the Chinese opium-smoking dens, where they were ruined morally and otherwise, end quote. That's some respectability politics, if I've ever heard it. The rhetoric of pure white people being lured in and coming out ruined morally and otherwise. What this gets at is this very specific protection of white women as the main concern. There are whole Chronicle articles, and man, we're really ripping into the Chronicle today, but articles that are fully devoted to finding white women in opium dens. That's it. That's the entire story. And the first line of one of these articles describes, quote, 
a respectable-looking white woman of 25 years and two hard-featured Chinese, end quote. There's obviously a dehumanizing parallel going on here between the hard-featured and the respectable white woman. The overarching point is that this ordinance was passed out of a spiraling fear that white women particularly were being lured in by the Chinese and would then act sexually promiscuous. This shows the intersection between gender and race that occurs in the war on drugs repetitively. Wars, whether they be over the physical domination of land or the perpetuation of laws that oppress certain groups of people, are conducted over the territories of women's bodies. It's a dichotomy that aims to conquer or criminalize bodies of color and simultaneously constructs and protects white women. This was super evident here in the example of keeping white women out of Chinese opium dens and in the larger war on drugs entirely. Even though a law is ostensibly applied to all people, there is typically a particular population of people, or in this case, a physical space that is occupied by a particular population of people that's being criminalized, right? And then there is a community that's being protected. And within this race being protected here, and usually white people, this quote-unquote protection becomes gendered. This rhetoric of protection is a way of engendering fear of the racialized other, scapegoating drugs to scapegoat immigrants to ultimately preserve both white supremacist attitudes and gender norms. Upholding the protection of white women's bodies is a central tenet of white supremacy. And so, again, the intersection of race and gender in these conversations, it's impossible to separate them. And it's impossible to separate local context from national policy. Opium laws weren't only targeted in San Francisco. And even when opium use was on the decline, Congress passed the Opium Exclusion Act of 1909, which outlawed the importation of opium for smoking. And this was the first federal law banning non-medical drug use. This time, the law specifically targeted smoking opium, the strain used almost exclusively by Chinese immigrants. Notably, opium-based medications intended for private and commercial use remained unaffected because, well, these markets were controlled by white-owned pharmacies. So what you're getting at here is that there wasn't necessarily an opium crisis arising at this time that pushed for new legislation. No, not at all. These practices were actually on the decline, and white Americans were not being targeted for their drug use in all white private spaces. This law more reflects the anti-Chinese sentiments that had erupted in the nation. There's then a direct connection here between criminalization and racial othering. Is the drug really the worry, or is the person using the drug the worry? We see it today, right? This isn't the way the media is talking about the current heroin crisis, and that's because this crisis has been portrayed as mainly affecting white communities, so the prescription of criminality there is lost. And that will be a future episode in of itself, but for next week, we'll continue chronologically with the next major drug law passed in America, Prohibition. Prohibition, the criminalization of alcohol. I think that's all we've got on this one. Do you think we were blunt enough? It's only episode one. I mean, we've got a lot of space to improve. (laughs) Yeah, by the last episode, it's just going to be a quick, oh, Clinton's 1994 crime bill? Definitely messed up. (laughs) Yeah, that's one of the most interesting ones because it shows how even so-called progressive administrations do incredible damage to the very people they claim to represent. All right, we're jumping ahead. We've got to stay chronological. Next week, the Roaring Twenties and the 1930s. 
If you want to see any of the documents we referenced in this episode, our sources can all be found on What The F's website in the Podcasts tab. Like What The F on Facebook to get notified when we release new episodes. I'm Natalie. And I'm Stina. And this was Blunt History.